All right, who knows what this is? Kids? You all know what this is? Yeah. Um, so for those of you who weren't with us last Sunday, last Sunday I made an offhand comment about an idiom that makes no sense when people say the proof is in the pudding. And I got up here and said, it's not pudding with two D's, it's pudding with T's. The proof is in the pudding, meaning uh, the proof of who we really are only shows up in our actions. The putting forth of your life, that's the proof of who you really are. And if you were here last week, you heard how absolutely confident I was about all this. Only I got home from church, and Jennifer says, hey Kyle, great sermon, but you need to know that people in our church are fact-checking you on the pudding thing, and it's not looking good for you. It looks like you were wrong. Now, anybody who knows me knows how much I love being wrong. And so I get on Google. I can, do, I can work the Google, too, just okay. So I do, I do my own Google search to prove myself right. And uh, after about 10 minutes, I just had to come to terms with it. It is indeed pudding. I don't understand it. It's from like the middle, medieval ages, I guess. I don't know, but it's a, it's a real thing. And so, here, so for one thing, y'all, I hope, I sincerely hope, you didn't go around last week telling all your friends and neighbors that they've been saying the pudding thing wrong because your pastor told you so. I hope you didn't uh, throw yourself under the bus there with me. Uh, I never mean to lead you astray, I promise. But then I also want you to know I'm committed to getting things right, okay? I, I'm going I'm to eat my humble pudding here this morning, and I'm going to weave it into the sermon today, all right? So here it is, officially, correctly, from dictionary.com. The proof is in the pudding is an expression that means the value, quality, or truth of something must be judged based on direct experience with it. You could say the proof of the pudding is in the eating. You only know when you taste it. The value or quality or truth of something can only be judged based on your own direct experience with it. Now, it turns out, y'all, that has a wonderful connection to discipleship. We've been spending these summer weeks talking about what it means to follow Jesus. Evan kicked this series off back at the 1st of June, telling us that we have to obey the call to follow Jesus. He calls us to follow Him. And then in these past few weeks, we've talked about what it is to come to Jesus in trust and dependence, to abide in Him. Last week, we talked about a disciple as someone who obeys Christ. We do what He commands. Well, today, I want us to see from the Scripture that a disciple of Jesus is someone who actually walks in his steps, or we could say someone who imitates Christ. It's more than just obeying what he says. It's actually living as he lived. This is what the Apostle John speaks of in 1 John chapter 2. And one of the things I love about this, this scripture, we're going to look at maybe a little collection of a paragraph, four verses altogether here. John weaves together several of the themes that we've been addressing in this discipleship series. We're going to see John speak of abiding in Christ, which Paul preached on a few weeks ago. We'll see John talk about obedience, which is what we covered last week. We're also going to see John's call to imitation. And that's our main concern today from 1 John chapter 2. So beginning in verse 3, we'll look at verses 3 through 6 here together. This is John now writing to the church, to us, and here's what he says. 
By this we know that we have come to know Jesus if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps Jesus' word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in Christ. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Now we're pulling this one scripture out of a larger context. And so I want to try to address a little bit of the bigger idea before we get more into the specifics. Uh, Notice how John says back in verse 3, By this we know that we have come to know Christ. Then again at the end of verse 5, he says, By this we know that we are in Christ. John is speaking right here to our assurance of salvation. And so much of the book of 1 John, which we're going to study in depth in the fall, 1 John's coming, So much of that that whole letter is designed to grant us and encourage us in our salvation that it's something we can actually be secure in. It's not something we have to guess on or worry about or spend our entire lives thinking maybe we're in, maybe we're out. No, we can have assurance that we know Jesus, that we have fellowship with Him, that we're united with Him. How? Well, right here in particular, John gives us two primary pieces of evidence. He says one piece of evidence is our obedience to Him. Remember what we said last week if you were with us? Obedience is not what saves us. Faith in Christ is what saves us. It's His obedience, His righteousness given to us. That's what brings us to God. But our obedience to Jesus is a result of that salvation. It's an expectation that we're going to obey Christ now as evidence that we really have come to know Him. We have fellowship with Him. We're united with Him. He is our Lord and our Savior, and therefore we do what He says. Now, obedience is not the only evidence of our salvation, according to John, but there's no assurance otherwise. And you see that in verse 4. To the person who claims to be a Christian and yet has no heart, no drive to obey Christ, then it's a bogus claim. It's cheap talk. It's empty talk in the end. John says the truth is not in them because their heart has not been changed. There's no desire to follow, to obey. And therefore, John says they they really don't know him at all in that case. And then alternately, he says, to the person who delights to keep God's word, their love for God is shown to be legitimate. In him, the love of God has truly been perfected. That means our love for God is reaching its end its goal because if you love him you will keep his commands Uh, now that brings us to the focus text for us which is the end of verse 5 and and then verse 6 john says one element of of um, of assurance comes from we obey christ that that that's evidence right well here's another piece of evidence by this verse 5 we know that we are in christ the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Y'all, I I distinctly remember back in college, about 20 years ago, at Mississippi State, 
I first came across this verse, 1 John 2, 6, and I was greatly inspired. I thought, man, what an awesome calling. What a privilege to live as Jesus lived. I was excited about it. I memorized that verse. And then I really started to think about it. Like, the dust settled a little bit on this verse. And I remember going from a high degree of inspiration to a very low point of desperation. Because honestly, the more I thought about that verse, verse 6, the less inspired I became because I began to, to question how great Jesus is and how bad I am. How on earth could I ever walk as He walked and live as He lived? Well, I mean, we're, ta- we're not talking about just an, an, an anointed man or even a great man. We're talking about the perfect man. The one true Son of God. The man who never sinned, who always loved, who always spoke what is true. He, he, he always knew the right and best thing to do and did it. And so how on earth could I ever be like him? How could I actually live like that? The inspiration wore off fairly quickly when I looked in the mirror and realized I can't do that. Now I've heard another pastor say it like this, that every, every human virtue that we esteem is like a little matchstick that only leads us to the bonfire that is Jesus Christ. He is not just a better version of us. He is the perfect Son of God. And so I became despairing as I considered 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. Maybe you do too when you consider it. Can anybody really walk as he walked? But y'all, I want to be clear on this. Something I need to hear continually. The same for all of us, perhaps. Y'all, the Scripture here does not command something of us that we could never do. By God's grace and with God's help, of course. But this is not meant to, to give for us a carrot so far in front that we could never reach, or a bar so high that we could never touch. Now, it is true if we say, left to ourselves, on our own, of course we'd never reach the bar. We could never live as Jesus lived. But to be a Christian means we are not left to ourselves. We have received new life in Christ, and with it a new heart, and and the very indwelling Spirit of God now has taken possession has come to to, to make His home in us. And so we're not fighting this with hands tied behind our back. We're not doing this merely in our own strength and best intentions. We're doing this as new creations, saved and filled now with the Holy Spirit. So I want to encourage us this morning to take a Scripture like this head on. There's no reason to dodge this or excuse ourselves from it or despair over it. We're meant to delight in it. We're meant to believe it. Jesus actually calls us to follow in His steps, and He enables us to do it. Imperfectly, sure. But nonetheless, He calls us and He empowers us. And so at this point, I want to show us what I hope is a place from the Gospels, from Jesus' own mouth, that would be instructive to this end, that would show us, in a sense, what He's talking about, at least from one angle. I want you to turn to John chapter 15. Turn back now to John 15, if you would. This is a chapter that we looked at just two weeks ago where Jesus calls us to abide in Him. Very famous scripture where Jesus speaks of Himself as the vine and we are the branches. He is the life giver to the branches that we may bear fruit for His glory. We may show forth the goodness 
of our connection to and our dependence on Him. All of our life and our fruitfulness depend on Jesus. That's the idea. Well, this is the Scripture today that comes right on the heels of what Paul taught us a few weeks ago as Jesus is speaking with His disciples and He's showing us by way of command, He's showing us what it is to be in relationship with Him, to abide in Him. Look at this. This is wonderful. John 15, verse 12. Let's read this paragraph. Jesus' words. He says, This is My commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are My friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give to you. This I command you that you love one another. Now, the bookends to that paragraph are very much the same. There's a command at the beginning and the end, what we just read. And it's a simple command. You see it back in verse 12? This is my commandment, that you love one another. But then immediately, Jesus qualifies that command. He speaks of it in a certain kind of way. He says, love one another just as I have loved you. That's imitation. Jesus is calling us not to love in merely a human way, a natural way. And we know, y'all, if you know yourself, you know how fickle your love, my love, can be. No, there's a certain quality, a depth of love here, a certain way of loving. We are to love others like He has loved us. And then He expands on that in in the very next verse. Again, very famous verse. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends. The greatest love of all is not what uh, Whitney Houston said it was. I'm going to go back to the 80s. All my jokes are from the 80s. Whitney said the greatest love of all. Y'all remember this? It's easy to achieve. Learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. Whitney was right about a lot of things, y'all. But not this. Jesus says the greatest love, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Now, we tend, I tend at least, to take verse 13 and to make a personal application right away with verse 13. Jesus is telling me what my love should look like. But I want us to be careful here not to jump too quickly there. Not that it's, I mean, it does apply, of course. It's meant to apply. But let's not jump so fast to personalize this. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. That is only potentially true of us. But it is positively true of Jesus. And we see in verse 14, you notice what he says right immediately after that? You are my friends if you do what I command you. Jesus is showing us in verse 13 something about himself first. What is potentially true of us is positively true of him. He is saying that the greatest love is shown forth in Him laying His life down for His friends. That's us. 
And then he presses even deeper in verse 15. You see this again, verse 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give to you. Now all of this, in my mind, is a a sort of commentary from Jesus explaining the depths of His love. Remember, the command is what leads this. Love one another. But then Jesus connects that command to His love for us and then He expands on it. How has Jesus loved His disciples? He tells us that He's brought them into His own heart and made them His intimate friends. He's brought them into relationship with God the Father. He's he's disclosed the Father to them. He's made known all things to them. He's chosen them. He's appointed them to His service so that good fruit would come from their lives and that fruit would remain forever. It will never, ever fade. For all eternity, their good fruit will be remembered and will be a, a, a reflection of God's glory. And now, through Jesus, you see there, in, uh, in t- toward the end, He says, now you can ask anything in My name and the Father will give it to you. That's the kind of relationship Jesus has uh, brought us into according to the great love that He has for us. You're that close now to the Father because I've loved you. I, I think a lot of us fail to recognize and appreciate, and certainly we don't live with the kind of uh, access to God. We just don't believe it could be true. And yet here from the mouth of Jesus, this is what His love has produced for us and in us. I've heard Tim Keller say, um, he poses this question, who in the world would dare to wake up a king at two in the morning to ask for a glass of water? His child would. His son or his daughter would. And without thinking twice, because to him, to them, that he's not first the king, he's first dad. And y'all, this is the kind of access Jesus is calling us to, to recognize we have a relationship with God now, the ultimate, perfect, eternal God of the universe, who we dare not approach in our smallness and our sin, right? Jesus says, no, I've brought you near. He's your father now too, because of the great love with which I've loved you. Now, we may stop at this point and say, okay, that's great, that's wonderful. But what does that have to do with imitating Jesus, with walking as He walked? And y'all, I want to tell you this morning, the answer is everything. This has everything to do with the topic in front of us. And this is a point I want us to see, the most important point I'm going to make, the driving thing here today. When Jesus calls us to imitate Him, specifically in John 15, it's the imitation of His love. It would be one thing for Jesus to look at His disciples and say, guys, look, you've watched how I love others, haven't you? You've seen it. You go and do that too. You love people like you see me love people. And that would be totally legitimate. That's imitation. We've seen it. We've witnessed it. We've read about it. Go and do your best to imitate it. But that's not what Jesus says, is it? He says, love one another. How? Just as I have loved you. Meaning this is not vicarious. 
This is not us watching Jesus love other people from afar and then trying to replicate that love somehow by our own strength and power. No, this is a love, Jesus says, that we have received. This is the love with which He has loved us. It's a love we know from experience. And because it is a divine love, the very love of God given to us in Christ, it's a love that comes along with divine empowerment. It's not just something we see and appreciate from afar. It's something we take to heart and it now fills us and changes us. You notice what Jesus says to his disciples, I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. It's his doing. He had just told them 20 seconds prior, I am the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. All that... All the good fruit you produce in my name comes by my life-giving power. That's the point of this whole chapter. And so we bear the good fruit of love in this case. By his choosing and his appointing, we're not left to ourselves to simply witness his love for others and then try to muster up the same within ourselves, to try to reach that very high bar, his standard on our own. No, the scripture says that it's his love working in us to produce something that we otherwise never could. It's His Spirit powerfully at work within us to lead us into truth and righteousness and the good fruit that Jesus promises. That's why, y'all, it's called the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. It's not called the work of the Christian, which again would be very legitimate. These are the things we're supposed to do. But if you read that list... I'm going off script, y'all. If I I start talking about pudding, y'all stop me, okay? I'm going off script. The work of the Christian could not possibly be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You can't grit your teeth and do any of that. And neither can I. It's the fruit, the produce of the Spirit. It comes from God. That's what's happening here. It's a love we receive and therefore we can reproduce in how we love each other. Now, this is not the only place in the Scripture where we see this pattern of direct experience that now leads to imitation. I'm going to show you a couple of more, okay? Because to me, this is just, this is wonderful. You don't need to turn there, but in John 13, the very uh, famous Scripture where Jesus washes the disciples' feet, one of the very last things He does before His crucifixion and resurrection, He washes their feet, and then He calls them to do the same. Here's what He says, John 13, verse 12. When he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, Jesus said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Jesus did not command foot washing. He did it. And He did it to the disciples and then commands them to follow suit. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul speaks on forgiveness and he commands it to be a Christian is to be a forgiving person. But notice how he anchors the call to forgiveness. This is Ephesians 4, verse 32. Paul says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. 
In 1 Peter chapter 2, the Apostle Peter calls Christians to endure suffering. When suffering comes, Peter says you bear up under it. And here's how, here's why. Listen to what Peter anchors this to. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. He says, For you have been called for this purpose, that is the purpose of suffering, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself to him, the Father who judges righteously. And he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Now, Quick summary here on the scriptures we've been looking at this morning. Love one another just as Christ has loved you. Serve one another just as Christ has served you. Forgive just as Christ forgave you. Suffer faithfully just as Christ also suffered for you. All of these things that we're being called to imitate are not simply things we've watched and and experienced vicariously. They're things that have happened to us and for us on our behalf. See, y'all, the Christian life does not begin with imitation. And so often that's how people are drawn into religion. The idea being that there's a a list of rules, a, a bar of behavior or morality that I'm expected to adhere to. And so it begins with imitation. I do my very best to obey, to imitate, to follow the pattern of this Jesus. The Christian life never begins there. In that case, nobody could ever become a Christian. We've already talked about that. Left to myself, I could never live as Jesus lived. You'd have a better chance of imitating Michael Jordan on a basketball court. Watching it is different than doing it. We could never simply watch Jesus and imitate Him. No, the imitation that we're being called to only comes in response to a prior receiving of His grace. We must see and experience what Christ has done for us before we can ever even begin to walk in His steps. Or maybe we could say it like this. Y'all, you're never going to love like Jesus unless you have first been loved by Jesus. You will never forgive like Jesus until you know first what it is to be forgiven by Jesus. And this is just this is what makes the, the gospel, the good news, so wonderful and so radical. Is that at no point did God the Father send His Son to earth to simply stand up for us as an example of righteousness. Certainly Jesus is the perfect righteous man. He is our example. The Bible says so. But if that's all the gospel was, then it wouldn't be gospel. Gospel means good news, not good advice, not good example. We could never achieve the bar in that case. But God did not send His Son simply to stand as the example for us. Jesus came 
to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus came specifically for the unrighteous that He might grant His righteousness to us, that He might bring us to God, not by our own merits, but by trusting in Him and His merits. Jesus came to give eternal life to everyone who looks upon Him and trusts in Him. That is the basis of everything that we are. Our imitation only begins to factor in after the fact, having seen Him for who He is and received Him for what He's come to do. But again, let's not, let's not stop with the Gospel proclamation when the Scripture has called us to now live in the proof, to live in the evidence. Having received Him by faith, the Scripture says we really can walk as He walked because we really are filled with His Spirit. We really have come to know Jesus personally and intimately by experience. And so come back with me one last time to 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. And I want to see something. I didn't draw a lot of attention to it before, but I want us to see it again. 1 John 2, 6. The one who says he abides in Christ ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. There's a root cause that precedes the effect. Y'all see this? The effect is the walking, the, the living. But the root of that, the cause of that, is abiding. You see that in the Scripture? To say you abide in Him, you ought to walk in the same manner that He walked, because one produces the other. Living like Jesus is a product of abiding in Jesus. Of trusting Him, seeking Him, depending on Him. Loving Him. Making Him the great treasure. Our, not our behavior, not our doing but our knowing Christ. That's the ultimate uh, reality that produces the living. Or we could say, the, the value, quality, or truth of something must be judged based on direct experience with it. The proof is in the pudding. The value must be judged based on direct experience. And y'all, that's what it is to walk in His steps. If you have experienced firsthand Jesus' love, His patience for you, His forgiveness, His kindness, His mercy, His humility to make Himself our servant, if we have experienced Him in those ways, then we're not trying to imitate Him vicariously. We're now trying to live by His grace out of what we ourselves have received. A love and a patience, a humility, a forgiveness, a kindness that we've come to know for ourselves. And so y'all, this is something we never shy away from. Will we ever walk perfectly in His steps? No. Just remove that category altogether. It's not about perfection. But it is about boldly asking God that by His grace, He would produce in us what we have received that we really would love others as we have been loved, that we really would forgive as we've been forgiven, that we would humbly serve as we've been served, so that we might be a reflection of Jesus Christ to everyone He calls us to encounter and everywhere He calls us to go. 
Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and turn and glorify your Father in heaven. Why would they glorify God based on my good deeds? Because my good deeds are merely a reflection of a prior and greater goodness that I've received, that you've received by grace. Walk in his steps, having received his love. Y'all, I want to encourage us as we close that the Lord might lead us to respond. And we're going to have our pastors, Aaron and Evan, available in the back of the room near the doors. If, you, if the Lord is moving in your life or in your heart in any way, whether it reflects what we've preached on this morning, maybe it be something entirely different, especially if you want to know Jesus as your Savior and receive His grace as we've proclaimed this morning and celebrated. And we're here to have that conversation to pray with you. And so here in a moment, as I'm praying, as we're singing our last song, if the Lord would lead you to go and and take one of our pastors by the hand, then I would encourage you to do that. But however we respond, the Lord calls us to respond. And in this case, having received Jesus Christ we should be bold in asking God for the grace to walk in His steps. This is not beyond us. If we have received His love, then we can love in kind. Because it's something we now know by direct experience. And He will bear the good fruit in us by the Spirit He's given us. Let's pray for that specifically this morning as the church. Father, I would ask that You would bring us, if there's any sense in us of, of despair as we encounter this, this key verse today, walking as Jesus walked, if perhaps we just discount that altogether and say, I just couldn't, I never could. I've lo- I look at my life, my past. I look at my, my this myriad of imperfections and, and there's just no way. Lord, would you encourage us today to see what you see and what you proclaim in in your word to us. Lord, that we're not left to ourselves here. We really do have the, the divine enablement, empowerment of your spirit. We have, if we are trusting Christ, Lord, then we have received these wonderful things that we're being called now to live out. And Father, I, I just I pray, maybe I'm, it occurred, occurs to me as I'm standing here and, and voicing these words that I ought to be more patient. And Lord, if I consider how patient You've been with me and my direct experience, my tasting of the proof that Lord, You have never treated me as my sins deserve. You have never turned your back on me, Lord, in all my failures. You have patiently loved me. And now you call me to be a patient person. Father, I pray that for me, for us, that something like that, our our direct experience with your great mercy would propel us to live as a reflection now of what we've received. And Lord, where this is truly difficult, we acknowledge that, but it's not impossible. 
you are at work within us to will and to work for your good pleasure. We can do this. But Lord, I pray for us this morning that it it starts and ends with Jesus. We abide in Jesus. We look to Jesus. We trust in him. And we trust, Lord, that what he promised his disciples, that he chose them and appointed them to go and bear fruit and the fruit would remain forever, Lord, that we would take that to heart today. Jesus can and will produce all kinds of of otherworldly good things in our lives if we will trust him and walk with him. So we pray for that, and we pray boldly, Lord, as your children. We know this is your heart for us. And so, Lord, let let us walk in it today as we walk in the steps of our Savior who's loved us and has given himself for us. And it's in Christ's awesome name we ask these things. Amen.